In the event that you missed it or didn't catch on in the, the children's message, just to clarify, for those that may not be as familiar with the term, when you read apologize in your worship folder, we aren't talking about apologizing in the sense of saying you are sorry for being a believer. Though there, there might be, I suppose to be fair, some instances where you might need to apologize to somebody else for how you acted as a believer if, if you are to kind of build on that relationship, but that's not the sense that we mean when we talk about apologizing today. Rather, think of it in terms of defending our faith. Sometimes appealing to the matter of logic and reason. Explaining to others, as Peter said in our second lesson, the reason for the hope that we have. If you're familiar at all with, if you've ever read through any of our Lutheran confessions in the Book of Concord, you are familiar with or have heard of the Augsburg Confession. That is simply a statement of what Lutherans at that time believed in contrast to what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching. When they presented the Augsburg Confession and the Roman Catholic Church read through it, they responded to it, clarifying where they disagreed. The Lutherans then in return wrote or crafted the next confession, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. They weren't saying, hey, Roman Catholic Church, we're really sorry for everything that we wrote. Rather, they were defending what they had written down and what they believe on the basis of Scripture. So an apology, a defense, uh, an explanation of our faith, it has a very important role. Now that being said, just as we have with some of the other words we've looked at in this series, we also have to, to beware when we talk about the importance of defending our faith or apologetics, this field of using reason and logic uh, to, to talk about and have discussions about the Christian faith, realize that the same with listening and the same with when we focus on the word always being ready, these things in and of themselves have never once ushered a single soul into heaven. Nobody gets into heaven because you have a sound, logical, reasonable argument for the faith. The only thing that is ever going to change somebody's heart and usher anyone to heaven is the good news of the gospel, their Savior Jesus Christ. However, apologetics has a role. And, and if you've ever gardened or even if you've just driven through the Midwest when fields are being prepared by farmers, then you know the importance of tilling the soil before the seed is laid down. Now why is that done? Tilling the soil works the soil. It brings up any rocks, any gravel, stones, weeds, any of the stuff that might impede the growth of the seed. When you think about it, tilling the soil doesn't make the seed any more effective. But it does improve the opportunity for that seed to grow. Apologetics as well, defending our faith, doesn't make the gospel more effective somehow but it may very well remove some of those stones, those rocks, those gravels in the hearts and, and minds of people listening so that they are then ready to hear the word of God. And without those obstacles, then the Holy Spirit does what only the Holy Spirit can through the gospel and converts. One of the, the charges against the Christian faith has often been that it's unreasonable. Well, you, you can't see God doesn't make any sense. There's no logic. You're foolish to, to believe something like that. Now, I, I say this tongue-in-cheek, but actually, what a great time for people to level that accusation that Christian faith is unreasonable. 
Because you know what? Our world is as unreasonable as it's ever been, isn't it? When you look at, at politics and science and medicine and, and how unreasonable our society and culture has been in recent years, what a perfect fit. An unreasonable religion in an unreasonable world. Again, I say that tongue-in-cheek because the truth is that Christianity is really quite reasonable. In fact, Jesus must have thought so if you considered the words that Luke recorded for us that were read from Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Remember what Luke said Jesus did after he rose from the dead in verse 3. It said, after his suffering, he showed himself to these people, these men, and, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, if Christianity were unreasonable, then wouldn't it stand to reason that no amount of proof or evidence would ever change anybody's mind? Because it's unreasonable. And yet Luke says that Jesus gave many convincing proofs. He gave evidence. He used reason, and that changed people's minds. Prior to that, and understandably, it wasn't reasonable that, that people could rise from the dead. But the convincing proof that Jesus provided of a dead man standing in their midst, teaching and preaching to them for 40 days, surely made them change their ideas of what was suddenly reasonable. So if Jesus was able to appear to them, the man that they had seen die on the cross, then suddenly this wasn't such an unreasonable thing after all. The Christian faith is really quite reasonable. And Jesus made that clear. Now what is, what is your role in sharing that faith and using reason? Well, reason has a place because, as I said, it can kind of open the doors. Now, it might, on the one hand, simply pique somebody's interest so that a, a person who wasn't really willing to ever listen to the word will now suddenly give it a hear, whether or not that person ever comes to faith. On the other hand, reason, logic, defending the faith might be the first step that, that actually ends up bringing somebody to faith as well. And God uses you and me to apply that logic, that reason, to defend our Christian faith. And there are two really good reasons why that is so essential, so important in our day and age. While people may not really be interested in the authority of Scripture, they're interested in, in what you have to say. I know that's a, a cheesy phrase and we roll our eyes every time I hear it when somebody says, well, that's my truth, or that's your truth. But we can flip that around and actually use that to our advantage. Because where people don't give as much credit or weight or authority to this anymore, they are willing to listen to what you have to say and what your experience has been. So this makes you, if you are finding yourself terrified about this very topic, and you feel unqualified to talk about apologetics at any weight whatsoever, Two reasons that this is the perfect time for you. Because the, the church as an organization and as an institution doesn't have the credibility that it used to. You, you can't any longer just say to somebody who's not in church on a Sunday morning but is at a coffee shop, why aren't you at church? And they'll feel ashamed or feel like they should be there. 
They won't even bat an eye at it. In fact, they might dismiss such a silly question these days. And there's some good reasons for that. We have to acknowledge that. When you think of, of some experiences that people have had, when a pastor or a religious leader falls from grace, that damages the reputation of the church. So when somebody points that out, be sensitive to that and try to understand that might be a very legitimate reason for them to be opposed to ever setting foot in a church again. Or maybe somebody has been burned by the church in the past, had some experience that scarred or wounded them and have never gotten over that. So they are not the, the church is the last place that they are looking. Then, of course, you always have the other reasons as well that people will, from the beginning of time to the end of time, throw out there. Church is filled with hypocrites. The church just wants your money and all the other excuses. And those have a place, too, to, to be able to talk and dialogue with somebody, but not, not as much weight as the other examples. So where the, the church has lost its influence or authority as far as the world is perceived, you have not. The world is interested in what you have to say. And so we need to shift our thinking that my goal is not just to get to some, somebody into church on a Sunday morning, but that in this day and age, I am the first point of contact, the first line of defense that, that God is going to use potentially to, to win somebody over. So there's a need for us to be able to defend our faith. So that's, that's one reason. The other reason, I know if you feel unqualified or terrified about this very topic, ask yourself, have you ever had doubts about your Christian faith? Are there any teachings that you've struggled with a little bit? Questions that you still maybe to this day haven't found a satisfactory answer? Well, guess what that makes you? That makes you 100% relatable to the unchurched. Because if you have questions, if you aren't sure of why you believe what you do and you need to keep learning and growing, that's much more relatable than the alternative, which be, would be, well, well, why don't you ask my pastor? He's the expert. Why don't you read what some theological professor or teacher wrote? Now, admittedly, sometimes people will go to seek out a, a pastor or a religious leader for that reason, but by and large, those individuals, those are just curious questions. But if they want a genuine answer, if they are curiously, genuinely looking into the Christian faith, you are much more relatable to that individual than I will ever be. Because if you want to tell them, boy, well, my pastor went to four years of a, a private school to train for ministry and then four more years of college and then four more years of seminary, they might go, wow, that's really impressive. You all know better. But the fact of the matter is, that's unrelatable to them. But when they look to you, an average person that they work with, that is their neighbor, that is their friend, that is their relative, they're interested in what you have to say. So we need to think of ourselves as that first point of contact and be okay with not having the answers, but being able to tell them that we know where to look for the answers. So apologetics matters. This carries weight. So now if we're willing to embrace those two, I think, compelling reasons for us to, to seek out to be better apologists, to defend our faith, because the, the church and the Bible don't carry the authority to the world the way they used to, but you do, and that you in, in your 
constant need to growth, and all of us really in our need to grow can relate to individuals much more than we might be aware. So now you're ready and you're eager to get out there. Now your question is, well, how come, how come nobody comes to, to ask me the reason for the hope that I have, as, as Peter says here? Why, why is that? Well, maybe there's a couple of reasons there, too. One, I think it's still a, it's a generalization, but it merits some personal introspection, I think. You realize that the world doesn't think, by and large, that Christians are all that intelligent. You Christians are dimwits. You believe a, a book that a bunch of old guys wrote a long time ago. You believe that the world was actually created. You believe in a God that you can't see. Well, on the one hand, if that's why they think we're foolish, we'll embrace that one. We'll, we'll readily embrace that the way that Paul does in writing to the Corinthians. Yes, I'm a fool for the cross. Absolutely. On the other hand, maybe there's a place for us to ask that tough question of ourselves. Do they think me un- unintelligent because I am? When is the last time that I've read a book? When is the last time that I've been in a Bible study to grow my faith? How many years or decades have I used the reason I'm uncomfortable talking about evangelism instead of actually growing to become a better evangelist or to learn and grow as a disciple? Maybe sometimes that's justified if if the outside world doesn't think very highly of our intelligence because we haven't grown much. The other reason somebody else may not be so quick to ask you the reason for the hope that you have And this, too, could sting a little bit. Maybe they don't see it in you. If somebody doesn't see any hope in your life, if you are no different than the average Joe out there in the world, if you are moping around and gloom and doom and the world is an awful place and things are only getting worse and you are just as inclined to debate and to argue and get sucked into that vacuum of darkness that the rest of the world does instead of being a light to shine If the world doesn't see that hope in you, should you really be that surprised that they're not coming to you and asking the reason behind that hope if it's non-existent? So ask yourself, do you have that hope? Are you able to apply that to yourself? What what Peter says in chapter 3, verse 15, he, he speaks very clearly about uh, being ready, prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do you have that hope? Is it yours? Is it evident? Are you embracing the hope that is yours in Christ Jesus? Does that smother you? Does it cover you? Does it envelop you each and every day? Do you wake up? ready to take on the day because you know that today, no matter all the things that are beyond your control, one thing that you know is that you have hope in Christ Jesus because today and tomorrow you live in the shadow of the cross. Today you live in the reality of an empty tomb. Today you live in the reality of a home in heaven and nothing's going to change that. You live in the reality of that hope. And that hope is is always and only connected to Jesus. So if that hope is distant, 
If you are allowing your guilt, if you are allowing the, the, the burdens and the weight of this world to crush you, to press you down, meanwhile, hope is like this, this helium balloon slowly sailing off into the sky, out of reach, but always out of touch. If, if that's what hope is for you, then it can only be because Jesus, too, is that distant. The closer Jesus is, the closer his hope is. Peter seemed to recognize that, which might be why he encouraged us in the first part of verse 15. In your hearts, set apart or revere Christ as Lord. If, if you showed up this morning and you looked on the wall behind me, and instead of a cross, you saw a beautiful painting, beautiful work of art, or, or a lovely arrangement of flowers, or, or some ornate candle, candelabra or something of, of that nature on the wall. You might look and, and say, well, that's, it's pretty, it's nice, but as nice looking as it is, you'd be shocked, you'd be appalled, you'd be downright ticked off, because there's no cross in the front of the church. That's what our hearts are like when we don't set apart or revere Christ as Lord. When we allow that space to be filled by something, anything else in this world, in our lives, when we ask God to, to share that, that throne, in our hearts, rather than being the sole supreme ruler in our hearts. When Christ isn't truly Lord, it really should not surprise us that our lives don't seem to be filled with much hope. But when we set apart, when we let, when we revere Christ as Lord in our hearts, hope will be there. And when that hope is there for us, because we know that that's what Jesus brings to the table. That makes a difference in our lives. It, it, it really is what, what embodies the rest of what Peter talks about. Being eager to do good. What drives you to do good is, is when Jesus is revered, is set apart in my heart because I know he loves me and I love him with a, a deep love and I want to serve him. And that means doing good, being kind to others, regardless of the outcome, how they might treat me in return. Because as Peter says, we know we're blessed either way. And what's my attitude going to be in serving others, loving others, putting them first, asking how can I help? It's going to be an attitude of gentleness and respect. Not argumentative, not insisting on my way. I'm not looking to put somebody in his place. Gentle respect. That's how we deal with other people when Christ is in our hearts as, as Lord. And you know what's going to happen when that is the case. People are going to ask, where's that coming from? Give me the reason for that hope that you have. And when that happens, God has opened a door to you to carry out something very simple, this simple evangelism, to listen, to witness always, and recognize that God has called and equipped you with the hope that first and foremost you need to be able to then give the reason, the defense, the apology for that hope so that others might share it as well.
Amen.